HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats and, and Happy New Year. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen in Zakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is so mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Marcus Consolini, who is the CEO of Daimon Shuzo, a sake brewery in Osaka that was founded in 1826. It is extremely rare to find non-Japanese management at the traditional sake brewery like Daimon. So today we'll discuss Marcus' unique background, why and how he decided to manage the authentic sake brewery, what changes he made at the brewery so far, what is special about sake and Japanese culture to him, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now let's start our conversation with Marcus Consolini. Hello, Marcus. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Akimashite, omedetou gozaimasu. Omedetou gozaimasu. Happy New Year. It's great to uh, it's great to be on your show, Akiko. You do a great uh, a great job and a, a great work for the industry and the the Japanese culture as well. I love it. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, yours. A very good start of the year for me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Happy New Year. So, okay, so uh, we have a lot to talk about. First of all, uh, where you're from and what did you eat when you grew up? Well, actually, I'm from your part of the world where you are right now. Um, I grew up in New York City. Uh, I was actually one of the few that have been born and bred in the city, uh, Manhattan, and uh, spent the majority of my upbringing between uh, New York City and the countryside of Massachusetts, Connecticut border where my grandparents lived. They were Italian immigrant family that had uh, moved into the United States and um, 
my parents had met in New York City later on in their lives, and that's where I was born and raised with a, an older sister. It was just the two of us and our two parents, but we spent a lot of time up in the country. Um, so that was kind of my okay. my upbringing as it sits in as a location. Yes. Mm, right. So I would imagine you ate some nice Italian uh, cooking when you grew up. We did actually.、Um, food was always a very central part of our our family environment.、Um, not just Italian cooking.、Uh, my mother was a professional chef, and so food in the household was always a focus. Everything from, you know,、uh, I would say,、uh, ornate breakfasts. To start my day, fresh squeezed orange juice.、Um, anything that my mother would cook was pretty much homemade from the from the get go. And then my grandfather, grandparents, obviously followed in that suit. My grandfather, at certain stages of his career, was a a butcher and a baker. And、uh, we, when I grew up, I have I have photographs of spending time with my great uncle making grappa and wine in the backyard. So. Um, food culture was very much a part of what we did, or, or how we lived when we were growing up in those days. Wow, that was far beyond what I imagined. Your mother was a professional cook and making wine at home, like you know, grand grandparents. It's really hardcore. So that makes sense that you know. It was well to, to them, but to them, it, it was kind of interesting. To them, it wasn't hardcore. To them, it was something that you just did. And which is very interesting because when we talk about Japanese culture and Japanese food, and I guess the, you know, the purpose of your message, what you get out there, the Japanese are still very grounded in a food culture, and that food culture is,、um, it it comes naturally.、Uh, I was, as you know, I'm just coming back from a long trip.、Uh, I was caught in a snowstorm on my way back from Kanazawa today, and、uh, in the back of my trunk, I was carrying skimono or pickles that my mother-in-law had made for our journey back. I am.、Um, so I think that the Italian culture and the Japanese culture have a lot of similarities in their just kind of acceptance that that the creation of food is is just what you do. It's not an extra task. It's just how you live your life. Hmm. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think both Italian and Japanese people think food as gift from nature, so it's not something you decide to make. It's just a given every day on a daily basis. That think is something in common between Japanese people and Italian people. I agree. I agree. Right. So I was looking at also your background, and、uh, I heard you have a black belt. So you can tell <laughs> us more about it. <laughs> Yeah, I do, and actually, that's kind of interesting.、Um, I have a black belt, and the martial arts was my introduction into the world of sake. Strangely enough, and、I'm, I know you'll cover that in your questions, but、um, yeah, it started with the martial arts. I've been studying martial arts since I was about twelve years old、uh, in the United States in the beginning, and then later I took it overseas. And my martial arts training has included、um, a lot of different、uh, styles of karate, and then Japanese iaido, which is swordsmanship.、Um, Using a, a live blade, so it's been a it's been a very interesting experience, you know, as as an I guess a gateway into the Japanese culture.、Mm, wow, I didn't expect this answer to come. <laughs> right,、mm. so 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 you are the CEO of Diamond Shuzo in Osaka, a traditional sake brewery that was founded in eighteen twenty six, almost two hundred years ago. But your background is solidly in finance, and you also are the managing director of a major asset management company based in 
Hong Kong and Japan. So when and how did you become the CEO of the traditional sake brewery called Daimon? Um, it was it was a really interesting experience, um, and and it happened very serendipitously. Um, <laughs> I was um, I was traveling back and forth on a regular basis. I've been based in Asia Pacific for about twenty, little over twenty, almost twenty five years now, and uh, I'd been living in Hong Kong, doing business across Asia Pacific, spending a lot of time in Japan. I've always been traveling back and forth wherever I was based in Asia into Japan. So Japan has been a core part of my career and my life. Um, this is the third time that I've physically been based out of Japan in my career. And um, I was doing a side project uh, where one of, one of the, I guess, hobbies that I have is I, I love finding old historic buildings across Asia Pacific and then renovating them. Um, and I was launching a project in Kyoto. It was just, a, again, it's just a side hobby. Um, and mm. it was a traditional Japanese machia, which is the traditional um, kind of row house model that the Japanese had um, in places primarily like Kyoto and also other unusual places like Kanazawa that I mentioned earlier. But... Mm. Um, uh, while I was doing this, starting the plans to do this renovation, I had an architect and the architect told me, he said, Marcus, you're very, very interested in Japanese architecture, which is, uh, you know, part of the hobby of studying Japanese architecture. He said, there's a very interesting piece that you should see. There's a place that you should go called Diamond Shuzo. And that's exactly what happened. It was, uh, it was on a Saturday evening and I, I supposedly had an introduction into the brewery, although, um, that wasn't quite the case, but um, I showed up at the doors of Diamond Shuzo and I, I walked in um, to look at basically the architecture of this 200-year-old sake brewery. Um, and at the time that I walked in, uh, Yasutaka Diamond, who was the sixth generation uh, family uh, Kuramoto or, or brewery owner, um, and the Toji, so he was actually a master brewer, was walking out of the brewery when I walked in. And so that was my first introduction into Diamond Shuzo. Mm. Um, what, what then happened is that Diamond-san and I started talking to each other immediately. And I'm speaking in Japanese and he's speaking in English, which was very, <laughs> very strange. Um, but uh, we very quickly um, hit it off and had a great conversation. And subsequently, we had several conversations after that. Um, talking about the industry, talking about his specific brewery and what what that brewery was going through at the time, and basically building up a relationship. And what uh, what I learned very quickly was that the brewery um, had been going through its own evolutions, and it was um, in a situation where it was on the marketplace. Uh, and that there were some significant interest in the brewery, but not to keep the brewery alive. It was very, there was some interest in the land value. Um, Diamond Son at this stage um, was still producing, but he had really focused on the product itself um, and less so on the, the driving of the business. So he was doing the master Toji's part of it. 
Uh, mm. And through our relationship and conversations, I very quickly realized that there was an opportunity. So I went out to the marketplace and started looking at how we could assist Diamond Brewery to take it into the next evolution of where it is today. Very exciting opportunity, mm. but one that I did not plan on. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But for Diamond Shizo, you are like an angel, literally an angel <laughs> investor. And uh, it's really interesting because the Sake Brewery, uh, Diamond is not the only one uh, who are facing hardship in managing um, financially and also, you know, as a capability, uh, doing, um, like you said, making sake as well as managing company. And they have to, at this point, they have to market their sake to many places beyond Japanese borders. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, this is a very particular, amazing example of sake brewery. Uh, Diamond Shizo hit uh, the gold mine, but this is one of them. I think it's uh, so many other uh, kind of unfortunately declining sake brewery. So, yeah, I'm so glad that you happened to go <laughs> through the Kyoto project. You happened to visit uh, Daimon Shizo. Me too. And it was a life changer. And to your point, um, you know, right now I'm the, I'm the first foreign, uh, you know, representative director as what the in the Western world we call CEO uh, of a sake brewery in Japanese history. Um, and you're right, there is a, a strong decline. If you look at the history of sake production, uh, the majority of the breweries came out as a result of um, families having excessive land ownership and rice production. This is kind of in line with what happened in America. If you think about the forefathers of America and the, the signers of the Declaration of Independence, they were all farmers and they had excessive amounts of um, produce that they were creating and, and they couldn't take it or sell it all to the market during the course of the year. So they started producing things like alcohol and the Japanese weren't very different from this. They did something very similar. And so a lot of sake producers were originally landowners, and then they became sake makers, and they focused on that as their craft. Um, but there is a decline across Japan, and there has been for quite some time, in the world of futsushu. So what we say is the, the average sake grade. Uh, and that decline has been happening since about 1976, which was pretty much the peak of the sake empire in Japan. And these uh, sake owners, these kuramoto, these family businesses have had to reinvent themselves. And it's not easy. Not only do they have to reinvent themselves in their own market because they're used to just selling around their neighborhoods and their immediate market, they've had to expand that into their prefectural regions and even further beyond that into other prefectures. But they've had to look for opportunities for international sales and export growth. And that's not easy. Um, and it's very, very intimidating for a lot of these mm -hmm. breweries. Uh, so intimidating that they would rather not engage in the export market and just focus on the domestic market, even if it's a decline. Mm, right. And uh, at the same time, for example, American market is almost exploding. And uh, the USA market is the largest export destination. I think almost 20, somewhere between 25 and 30% of the total exports. So 
Yeah, I see people, uh, like brewers, come here to New York and other parts of America to promote their sake. But um, I tend to see the same uh, breweries because I think the majority of breweries have no,、um, you know, capacity to be able to do so. So, yeah, it's a shame. But hopefully, someone like you is going to、um, promote their motivation <laughs> to go abroad.、Um, Yeah, so, so the, yeah, we talked about this, you know, the history of the sake industry, but what is the history of Diamond Shuzo and、uh, what types of sake do they make? Yeah, that's a really good question because the history of Diamond Shuzo is actually、um, intertwined into this, this comment that you made about、um, the breweries that are making it over to the United States. Uh, Diamond Shuzo started in 1826,、uh, six generations. In some ways, I even consider myself the seventh generation, which is kind of funny.、Um, <laughs> but、uh, six generations of a family business. And it started basically、um, with the Diamond family.、Uh, Diamond family was a predominant family in the local area, Katano Shi, which is. Which is,、um, it's about 30 minutes by public transportation out of the center of Osaka, and it sits right on the border of Nara and Kyoto. So it's in a very interesting position because 30 minutes from a geography perspective, I can be at the center of Osaka, I can be in the center of Nara, and I can be in the center of Kyoto. And this brewery started. Um, with the intention of making sake.、Uh, it was a, a really interesting time because 200 years ago,、uh, the Osaka brewers was, was a very small community because, partly because they were merchants. And so, what they were doing is they were buying the sake that was being made over in Nara and Kyoto and Kobe, which are three very big. Regions for sake production, and they were shipping it all around Japan. So it was kind of interesting that Osaka was starting to build its own sake production, but much like any alcohol production anywhere in the world, you know, local communities want to have their local sake. So that's kind of where it all started. And then、um, the objectives over the years was to make、uh, a sake that was conducive to the local region. And in this case, for Diamond Shuzo, the unique part was that the local region was this border between these three states. So it meant that Diamond Shuzo had to kind of adapt its sake to fit with a certain profile that would make the food culture of these three different distinct cities and these three areas. And to give you an understanding, and you know this already, but to give your audience an understanding of what that means. The food culture in Osaka is very much、um, fun and lively and social, and it's very street oriented with things like okonomiyaki and takoyaki. And then you go into、uh, environments like Kyoto, where it's much more traditional. It's where the aristocracy have dined, it's where the emperor has, has built certain food profiles with kaiseki yori and these kinds of things. And then you go into the oldest of the, the、um, I guess,、uh, cultural heritages of the region in Nara, where it's very Buddhist oriented and there are, it's a sleepier type of culture and it's a, the food is, is、um, very focused on vegetarian type, you know, Zen oriented Buddhist 
food cultures. So these three different food cultures has forced Diamond Shuzo over the course of the years to really focus on what we call a kamigato umami style. Um, so most producers will tell you that their sake is either of a dry nature or of a sweet nature or um, it's high acidity, depending on you know what they're trying to portray. And yet we're probably in the camp of about, I'd say maybe 10 to 15% of the brewers across Japan will mention or will stress that their sake is an umami profile. And so what we're trying to achieve is an umami profile that can work with these different food cultures that are basically right at our doorstep. Mm, interesting. Yeah, sake is unique in the sense that it has umami. Wine doesn't have much umami. And uh, it's that's why sake is very um, convenient to pair with food and very forgiving because of the one of the reasons is there's umami in it. So... Yeah, I haven't tasted Daimon Shuzo sake, but I really have to look for it. And uh, I found that in 2020, Daimon Shuzo was awarded the silver and bronze medals at the reputable international sake competition in London and called, that's the International Wine Challenge, which is major. Yes. So congratulations. Thank you very much. We've actually done quite well in international competitions since 2018 when we started to uh, to enter into these competitions and part of the reason is because of this this umami profile the other thing that I think is in there's two other things that I think are quite unique and interesting about Diamond Shuzo and our sake from a profiling perspective the first is that there's only about three percent of breweries left in Japan that are using flowing mountain water as their mountain water source or the water source uh, huh. if you look yeah, if you look across the whole of the country, um, about 60% are using well water um, and about 35% are using municipal water. So they're using local water that they then wash or they purify. And then there's, there's a very small percentage left, under 5%, that are using flowing water sources. And strangely enough, although we're based in Osaka, we sit right at this borderline with Nara and the Icona mountain range. And that gives us access to an incredible subclimate in the mountains that, that are literally on the backside of the brewery. And so we get all of our water from flowing water source that is in the mountain and has been part of the Diamond family for 200 years. And that makes what we think, you know, the, what, what the, the market will call the terroir, uh, of sake, but we think that adds a very special character to our sake. And then the mm. other thing that's quite so, interesting is that Diamond San has has had an, a uh, has had a lot of experience with um, overseas and international travel. He lived in times uh, in Europe and in India, and he understands foreign palates. And so as a result, what he does besides focusing on just the umami is he's constantly looking at how each one of our products can be uniquely different. So whereas some producers will change maybe the polishing ratio in a recipe um, and keep other factors relatively similar between different products, we reinvent each one of our products from the bottom up. So mm. each type of our sake is going to be unique and that gives us a lot of depth and breadth of experience when it comes to the production side of making special sake. 
You know, it's um, it's a special place, and it's a special place for many reasons. One, um, obviously, we believe that the sake is unique, and the sake is is very good. But as Diamond San would say, no matter how you want to categorize it or how you want to analyze it, he'll just he'll just look at you and he'll say, "Just enjoy it. Just enjoy it." So we believe that our sake is something special to enjoy. Um, the geography of the land and the brewery itself, to me, is is very powerful. Uh, having this kind of inaka or countryside experience, yet so close to these major cities, is very unique. Um, and I think that that kind of creates a a mystical feeling when you're at the brewery. The brewery itself is very unusual because basically we have three geographies. We have a 300-year-old house, which was the house that Diamond Son was born and raised in, and the supporting gardens to that house, which are very traditional Japanese-style gardens. And then we have a 200-year-old brewery. And when I say 200-year-old, I'm saying the beams and all the structure of the brewery are the original beams. It's just, it's a, it's a, powerful piece of architecture and mm. then we have a production environment that now is 60 years old so it looks old and worn but in its day it was the first concrete structure that was made of any sake brewery in the osaka region and so there's a lot of history here that mm. makes it very very unique and that history to me is even more important because um you know i i I had this opportunity to suddenly be there and then um, had to figure out how I can help and assist. And then once that happened, I realized how important it was for me to be here full time in order to manage the business. It wasn't something that you could manage from afar or in a distance. Uh, and so that suddenly meant that my family was involved. I have a young daughter. And my young daughter plays in the garden of the brewery and calls Diamond Son grandpa. Um, and Diamond Son has two sons that we've been able to convince to join the Brit business. So these two sons have taken on roles within the brewery as well. It's very much a family event. It's a family place. It's a family experience. And that mm. is going to be special for anybody who gets the opportunity to experience it. Right. Well, before you uh, gave me the whole answers, you said you devoted your life, and literally, you really devoted your life to the brewery. I didn't know this uh, to this extent. Your whole thing changed just by visiting the brewery yeah, one day. <laughs> that's exactly right. And and the the interesting thing of that moment was when I realized that the brewery needed help. Um, I then went out to to raise capital, obviously, to invest in the brewery to make sure that the brewery would go into its next evolution. Um, but, but it was more than that. It was, it was very quickly realizing that that help had to be a permanent thing. So we, you know, we bought up, brought in a bunch of, um, investors as well that have added value and have continued to promote and to help with sales and, and to help with expanding the word of Diamond Brewery and it expands the family in itself. And it really becomes a, 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 a very special, unique project. And part of the reason why that can happen is um, Diamond Son himself and his family was very inviting. 
And I think that the environment being in Osaka is very inviting. I have a kind of a joke that if I was in Akitaken, they probably would have tarred and feathered me by now. But because <laughs> I'm I'm in Osaka, you know, these people are are very generous and very curious and very outgoing and social. Um, so it makes it very uh, easy to kind of come in and and you're a little bit more accepted than you would normally be in in revitalizing what is a traditional uh, hardcore you know uh, cultural business which is not so easy mm. to to enter into. Hey, that's interesting. I'm mean, actually Osaka. The city itself, once you go into the city of Osaka, there's a different vibe, and uh, people speak with different accent, and uh, the way they speak is more straightforward, and it's funny, and I really love being in Osaka because of that energy. But yeah, so I'm glad you're there and enjoying your life there. It's a it's a great place to be. I think um, I spent. Uh, I spent, like I said, I've, I've spent three tours or three times living uh, for extended period in Japan. I did uh, just under two years in Nagoya, three years in Tokyo, and now I'm three and a half years in Osaka. And I loved Nagoya when I was in Nagoya, and I loved Tokyo when I was in Tokyo. And now I have to say, I really love Osaka. I think, mm. and, and not just Osaka, but the Kansai region, the diversity of within one hour being able to go to a place like Nara, Kyoto, Osaka, Kobe, drive over to Shigaken. I mean, this is just a, it's a really special part of Japan and it's very easy to access. And then it's always great to come back to Osaka and, and have this kind of relaxed social atmosphere, which is quite unusual. Um, mm -hmm. so it's, I've been very lucky to find such a spot and the, you know, I'm obviously a member of the Osaka Brewers Association. And so I attend all the events and the dinners and the, 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 um, I guess, uh, sake tasting events that we host and everything like that. And they've been very welcoming and they've been very, uh, engaging and in many ways, you know, where I thought that I would meet resistance, it's been the opposite. They kind of see me as the the foreign contribution to their family. And so when we do tasting events, you know, they turn to me to be the loud, boisterous New Yorker um, who's suddenly, you know, calling people in, bringing people into crowds so that they can enjoy sake. And it's, it's, a, nice, it's a nice balance. It works very well. I'm very mm. lucky. Hey. And I'm sure your daughter, four years old, <laughs> starts speaking Osaka dialect. That would be very cool. She does, actually. <laughs> we, uh, over the weekend, we saw, we saw the grandparents and an uncle and aunt. And the uncle and aunt were, it was an introduction of a new family member. So my wife's brother uh, recently had a baby. And so I was meeting my niece and my daughter was meeting her cousin. Um, and it was really funny because everybody kept on talking about my daughter's Osaka Ben, her dialect, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's still it's kind of cool. It was it was hey. nice. Hey, that's super cute. All right, so uh, we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll discuss what has changed at Diamond Shizou since Marcus joined the brewery. So please stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, 
Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is Marcus Consolini, who is the CEO of Diamond Shuzo, a sake brewery in Osaka that was founded in 1826. So what is your role at Diamond Shuzo, practically speaking, and how do you split your time between running a financial company and a sake brewery? So the the role at the brewery itself is, is an oversight role, um, and my passion um, obviously everything is my passion but my passion is uh, managing everything on the facility side we have a restaurant on site as well um, and then everything on the production side and liaising with um, international sales so export sales and then assisting on the domestic sales side which is run with a with a team that's based at the brewery. So I see the team every week um, and we engage a hundred percent on what's going on in the marketplace and what we're trying to achieve in, in our targets and this kind of stuff. It's pretty full on. uh, And it's not something that you can, you can, you can regulate meaning i can't say okay i'm going to only be at the brewery two days a week it just depends on what the activities are in addition i've got a full staff of brewers but we get people that suddenly come in on sick leave and they can't attend and then i brew so i will i guess i'm three i'm in my fourth season now of brewing as well i'm like the emergency emergency backfill brewer um, and that's that's the nature of the business. Uh, when I started with Diamondson uh, three and a half years ago, there were really only two people left in the brewery, and now we have fifteen. So all those people have been brought on to support the business, whether they're brewing, whether they're selling, whether they're working um, in you know graphic design and marketing, whether they're working in the office side of it. Uh, all these people have come in since since we relaunched the business. Um, and that requires a constant, you know, set of eyes and a constant set of attention. Um, mm. but we're lucky. We've got a lot of good people working on this and, and driving this project forward. Hey, okay. So what changes have you made since you joined Diamond Shizou? So in the very beginning, the, the obvious approach for me was to hit into the international market. 
um, obviously because I've got experience across Asia Pacific, but because I'm a foreigner. And so the, that target of, of how, do, how do we get into the international market when we weren't, haven't been into the international market for several years uh, was the first focus. And the second focus was really how do we penetrate more of Kansai? So we're in Osaka, but we wanted to be the number one recognized jizake or craft producer in Osaka, and that's our target. Um, and part of the reason for that is because Osaka's population is a very healthy population. They're a very big drinking population, and they're also a little bit ethnocentric. They love Osaka. Osaka's for Osaka. Uh, so we wanted to capitalize on that and provide a sake that we think you know, they would want to champion. So we've spent a tremendous amount of time focusing on the Osaka marketplace and then our immediate neighbors. And when I say immediate neighbors, of course, that means, you know, um, places like Kobe and Kyoto and Nara, but on the fringes, not necessarily in the deep side of those cities, but really in the borders where the border lines are blurred between Osaka and that prefectural area. And so that's been a big portion of what we've done. And then um, from the very beginning, my personal focus was to get into Asia Pacific, not necessarily America. And part of the reason for that was because America's far away. America is a great market, and we have a product in, in America that's called the Road to Osaka, which is, a, which is a, a great, we really like this name, because it's the only product in the marketplace that has the word Osaka in it. And it really, mm. it really rings true to what we're trying to portray. And we, we bring that into the United States. And that's a recent thing that's happened since pre-COVID, just pre-COVID, we launched into the United States. Um, but prior to that, the focus was really on Asia Pacific. And that's what our focus remains now. Um, so we're, you know, constantly building more inroads into China, into Taiwan. We have a very, very successful following in Hong Kong, moving into uh, Thailand, other countries across Asia Pacific, Singapore, we have a very good following. The idea being that it's closer to home. It's easier to educate because the the Asian community has been drinking Japanese sake for a hundred years and drinking their own rice wine of whatever sort that might be, depending on the country that you're in. Um, but so that was the original focus. So really building out those two marketplaces. How do we do more in the international marketplace focusing on Asia? And then how do we do more in Osaka and our borderline regions? So that's, that, that's taken the last three and a half years of our time and it'll take the next 30 years of our time. I think that's a, it's, it's a big goal. Mm, right. Well, I feel very hopeful about, you know, the way you see the market globally, um, there are so many opportunities for sake, for the sake industry. So, yeah, I look forward to what we're going to do uh, what in this, I don't know how many decades it's going to take for Japanese sake brewers to revive, which I believe. So we'll see. It, it'll, it'll, it, it'll, it, it's happening. It's happening. As you pointed out, um, you know, the American market is growing and it's growing tremendously. Um, and all international markets are growing, and that's the result of the interest in Japanese food culture, um, which makes it a very unique alcohol. Um, the negative to that is it's not going to be a gin, it's not going to be a whiskey, it's not going to be a sudden boom type alcohol. Um, it's always going to be something that's associated with Japanese food. And then slowly, those people who have have 
really adopted sake into their life, start pairing it with other foods, and then it just becomes one of their many sources of you know alcohol to drink. Um, but it's growing. It's and then I think I am a real big believer, and Diamond San is as well, that the Japanese market, the domestic market, will grow. It will not decline. Of course, I'm talking about premium sake, um, futsushu, which is the the kind of the average convenience store sake, um, which has its place. Uh, I'm not saying that it's it's all bad. Some of it's <laughs> pretty fun to drink, especially when it's freezing outside and you've got an atsukan in front of you. Um, <laughs> but premium sake, I think, will continue to grow. And the reason is because the younger generation is becoming more and more interested in it. Just like the younger generation became more and more interested in craft beer, we're seeing a very similar pattern in the sake world. And people are starting to pay attention to where the sake is coming from and who's the brewer and what are they trying to do as a brewer and what are the unique things that they're putting into the marketplace from a product perspective. Are they, are they experimenting with different yeasts and different kojis and different kinds of rice? And all mm. of these are making more and more people interested and curious about learning about sake. And I think as that grows, it'll continue to expand the marketplace. Right. Yeah, really, I do agree. And especially like, for example, something like my father's generation never thought of that's a sparkling sake that's made um, in a champagne method, which is a lot of work, but it's a premium and people appreciate it. So that's one of the examples that I think there's a good energy um, started to be born in the whole industry. So yeah, hopefully it's going to happen soon that we see the sake industry like, wow, they really made a good comeback. Um, all right. So what is the biggest challenge in running a traditional sake brewery for you? Uh, I think the biggest challenge is those three words, traditional, sake, and brewery. <laughs> um, a traditional business uh, requires a tremendous amount of delicate handling. Mm. Um, it's hard to dictate terms. It's hard to um, answer every task or every uh, objective from a commercial perspective. It doesn't necessarily work that way. And one of my favorite examples is that when I started at the brewery and started revamping not only the product, but, you know, the marketing and the labeling, I also approached the pricing. And I'd say that one of the biggest challenges I faced in the beginning was convincing my team and primarily Diamond Son about the change of certain pricing models. And the reason is because in the end, Sake is priced very much to a fair market value and sake producers, they are very much in line with themselves. And part of the reason is because there is a cultural significance of them being in line and they don't want to stray away from that. They don't want to suddenly be the most expensive sake. There's a sense of embarrassment at something like that. And as Diamond San would say to me on a regular basis, he'd say, if we price our sake too high, then Mrs. Tanaka across the street, she can't afford it. And so mm, there is right. a very much sense right. of um, responsibility by sake producers to, to make an affordable product that they can 
they can sell locally to their local community that they've been servicing for hundreds of years. And so that's, that's not going to go away. Right. So you have to be very, very conscientious of that. And then on the sake side, you obviously need to make a product that meets both the traditional requirements of your local community as well as, you know, the unique requirements of an export community. And then you're running a brewery and a brewery is a full-time operation and it's seven days a week during the winter season, especially as a craft producer. Um, you've got You've got teams that are in there. You've got people that have have you know are constantly working long hours in order to um you know work with a living creature and uh that requires a, a very sensitive touch like i said so i think those are the you know the the biggest awarenesses is you know the the cultural implication of of running a brewery not just the commercial implication and i think that i've been lucky because I had lots of cultural Japanese cultural experience. As you mentioned, I studied martial arts. I studied extensively the Japanese tea ceremony, um, traveled throughout Japan, lived in Japan. Um, I, uh, you know, married, I was very lucky. I married a, a, a Japanese woman, although she wasn't raised in Japan. She was raised in England and Wales. Um, there's, you know, I had learned a lot of that cultural sensitivity that hopefully has helped me, you know, assist the development of Diamond Brewery as it goes into its next evolution. Mm, right. Sounds like a never-ending fine-tuning and studying, researching, but sounds very um, motivating and exciting to give the balance of that delicate aspect. And also you have to meet the market's demand. So it sounds like you're enjoying it a lot. You know, I'm coming from, and and when you talk about finance and and previous roles that I've held, I've you know worked in in big banks like J.P. Morgan and investment banking and running trading floors, and while that was exciting because the markets can be very exciting and very stimulating, this is a whole different level of sensitivity and excitement, and I enjoy it very much. And uh, and I think my my favorite call in the morning is when when mm. somebody's sick, and I I've definitely got to spend the day. You know, working on the production side of the business, I love doing that. That's um, getting your hands dirty is a lot of fun. Mm. Right. Well, so well, we talked about the Japanese sake industry, and that's been declining quickly over the last decades um, due to multiple reasons, such as competitive alcoholic products in the market, like wine and craft beer, and labor shortage and succession issues and so so forth. So, so on the other hand, sake is becoming very popular outside Japan, as we talked. So how do you predict the future of Japanese sake? Like, like maybe the path, like timeline, what's your... So um, to predict is a little mind? bit tough. I, I think that... Um, we're going to go through quite a few more years of uh, deterioration of the traditional breweries. And that's because of management skill set, commercial situations, um, the points that you've raised. Inheritance is huge. The younger generation doesn't want to work as hard as dad worked. Um, and so that is having a big impact. And I think that will continue um, for a period, for first 
quite a few more years, and then I believe it'll stabilize. And I think what will happen is that the Brewers Association and the Japanese government, and the Japanese government is doing a lot to try to promote sake, and organizations like Jetro are doing a lot to try to promote sake, and I think that will continue. Um, and I also think that Japanese brewers are starting to um, – uh, tweak is the word I want to use. They're trying to play with flavor profiles and trying to create a little bit. And it's a very uncomfortable thing for a Japanese brewery to do. Because if you if you make a mistake on a batch of sake, then you, you there's a financial impact that's huge. And um, you know, a lot of these brewers want to keep experimentation at a minimal. But they know that they need to experiment, so they're learning gradually, slowly maybe not at the same pace as a craft beer maker, um, but they're, they're learning. And as a result, they will change and alter their profile um, to fit a lot more into the export market and the export market's requirements. So I see a lot of upside. When I came into the brewery, one of the first things I did, actually before I decided to, to um, work with the brewery, I did a lot of research. Uh, I brought some people together to look at the export market, but also the domestic market to understand where the future trends will be. And I think it'll continue to grow. We know it'll grow internationally, and I think it'll grow domestically. So I see a bright future for sake, but um, I'm going to paraphrase that by saying it's going to be organic growth. This is not an overnight sensation. Um, you're not going to suddenly, you know, stumble upon a brewery that is, um, you know, going to be a giant uh, success um, or a, a huge brand name in the marketplace. It's going to take a lot longer for organic growth to catch up and for world, world consumers to understand and recognize brands because these brands are traditional brands and they're they, they're not going to change their name to get a, a cool and savvy name or a funky name or, um, you know, they're going to use tradition as a backbone of what they're doing. So it'll take time, but I, I have a lot of faith in what's going to happen in the industry. Mm, right. I really hope so. And uh, so what would you like to see the see future of Diamond I want to see us continue to do what we're doing, and I think we're doing it well. Um, uh, continue to make inroads into the international market. Uh, continue to um, be a be a, I guess, a champion of the Osaka marketplace and the Kansai region. Uh, and then there's another element that I think is really special about Diamond Shuzo, and that is in 2009, Diamond San did an internship program. He called it the internship program, and it's really the only. Um, program in in all of japan that is a core fundamental um sake brewers course and we offer it in english which is the unique part um, we only take 12 interns a year we do um three courses where the interns a uh, group of four will come into the brewery they'll live in the brewery and basically, they brew with our brewers through the course of a week, and they receive uh, formal instruction by myself and Diamond Son, where they learn about how to brew sake. And I raise this because I think it's really, really interesting. 
Um, it's also a great opportunity to teach the international community. And I'm a big fan and supporter of promoting the sake education around the world. There's a lot of brewers out there on the international market and it's growing. And a lot of them have been trained at Diamond Brewery or at the very least they've reached out and engaged us and we're friends. In addition, I sit as a, on the advisory board of the North American Sake Brewery, uh, Brewers Association, sorry. Um, and, you know, trying to help with that promotion on the education side. And I think that's something that Diamond Brewery will continue to do and be unique in the marketplace. How can we actually teach the future international producers of the world? And I've noticed that, you know, for example, on your your radio show, you've had Brooklyn Kura on, I believe, two times. Um, great team, great guys, um, and a mm -hmm. very close relationship with them. It's a great example of how, you know, that ethos of taking Japanese sake into the international market is even more powerful when it's being produced in an international environment. So uh, we support that. And I think that's going to continue to be another one of our little focus and, and I guess, crusades is to promote that in, in, into more markets internationally. Hey, well, that's a very impressive effort because, you know, some brewers could be like, no, we don't want to teach anybody to anybody else. That's a very uh, traditional, narrow mindset. But now uh, sharing is learning and expanding the pie. So, yeah, I didn't know that Diamond was such a leader of doing it. And I think uh, I'm going to have one of the interns on the show sometime oh, in the very near great. future. So that'll be great. Stay tuned. <laughs> one, one interesting point about that, you know, within the brewers associations, Japanese brewers are very, very friendly. They're very friendly is the wrong word. They're very helpful. They're supportive. They work together. They're not competitive. It's not a, it's not, it's not like other markets and other products where you don't talk to your competitor and you're seen as the enemy and you're trying to take market share. Japanese sake is a supportive industry. And so all the brewers are helping each other. And the reason why they've been slow to work with the international market is because the Japanese are intimidated by either international protocols and etiquette or the language. They, and it's not because they're scared. It's just because they don't want to do something that might offend somebody, something that they don't understand. And so they've been slow to engage the international community in the world of sake. But that doesn't mean that they don't want to. They do want to, and they want to help other producers and other, other you know, soon-to-be um, sake makers in other markets. They definitely want to help them. They're just a little bit nervous about, you know, the, the protocol and the cultural etiquette and the communication style. So they become a little bit more reserved. And Diamond Shuzo has the advantage of having, you know, English speaking capability. So we should use it and we should continue to be a bridge into the world of Japanese sake. Mm, right. Interesting. Right. So the Japanese uh, sake industry, actually, it's interesting that it's very um, communal in a way because the government uh, is organizing kind of the distribution of um, sake rice and yeast. And it's very, there's nothing to hide. It's a good rice. You share it. 
and a good ease to you share it. That kind of mindset is very communal and uh, it's a very important uh, vital part of the sake industry to continue and thrive in the future. So yeah, and uh, so this is my final question. So where can we find you? Updates online, where can we buy Diamond Shoes or Sake? In the United States, you can buy Diamond Shoes. Well, actually, it's kind of interesting. You can buy Diamond Shoes or Sake through Vine Connections. Um, you can find it on online. Uh, Vine Connections is one of the biggest Jizake importers into the United States. They work with wholesale retailer uh, uh, across the United States, all states in the United States. And you can find it under a product brand called Road to Osaka. So all you have to do is Google search Road to Osaka, and then hopefully you'll find where you can pick it up locally. There's also another um, there's another uh, um, entry point into the United States. We've done a project with the Tatsuya Group down in Texas, which is a very, very unique um, and very successful Japanese um, eatery group that uh, started off in the ramen side of it and have moved into a lot of other different food profiles, izakaya style, nabe style, these kinds of things. And we are doing a house label with the Tatsuya group that we will soon inter- enter into the national marketplace as well. So by middle of this year, you will hope to be able to offer three different sakes on the shelves across the United States for people to all enjoy. If you're in domestic Japan, it's very simple. You just go to our website and we will ship to anywhere yeah, in Japan that's at exciting. any time. So, all right. Um, mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> right. So the website, uh, what is the website? It's- for Diamond Brewery, it's www.diamondbrewery.com. And and that's for, for the domestic marketplace. Yep. So uh, if people want to know more about yourself, uh, where can we go to? <laughs> sure. Um, social media. Social media. I'm I'm not a, a big champion of social media. Um, I, I do have an Instagram account that's under my name. Um, and you see, you can see things about uh, Diamond Brewery, but we also have Instagram accounts under Diamond Brewery. Um, and again, it's D-A-I-M-O-N, so it's really easy to find. We also have Facebook under Diamond Brewery, uh, Twitter accounts under Diamond Brewery. And then if you do a Google search on Diamond Brewery, when you come up to the website, the website's also in English and Japanese both. So it's easy to see our different products and learn more about the brewery. And then if you have any questions, you can always send email to info at diamondbrewery.com and I will be happy to respond. Excellent. So, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Marcus. And I know it's so late <laughs> over there in Japan, so my apologies. But uh, it was a great show, so thank you so much. Akiko, this was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And again, Happy New Year, and keep doing what you're doing. It's an awesome program. A big supporter. Thank you so much. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatema.com. Japaneeds is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. I'm Jinny Zaman Wang, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week.
Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.